Welcome to the Empower Podcast Coffee and Clary. I'm Lila. And I'm Ava. Today we have the pleasure of welcoming Kaylee Hernandez and Roy Kamer. Kaylee and Roy both join us with an amazing amount of knowledge about vaping and tobacco use. Could you each of you tell us a little bit about yourself and as well as what you do? My name is Kaylee Hernandez and I'm from Mankato, Minnesota. I have three girls and a husband and one small Italian greyhound. Um, professionally, I am the Statewide Health Improvement Partnership for Faribault, Martin, and Watonwan County, and I do the context areas of healthy eating, tobacco prevention, worksite wellness, and just overall well-being within the communities. Uh, my name is Roy Kammer. I'm a faculty member at Minnesota State University, Mankato. Uh, I teach in our health science department. Uh, more specifically, I teach in our alcohol and drug studies program. We train people to be alcohol and drug counselors. So I personally, I'm licensed as an alcohol and drug counselor. I practice as an alcohol and drug counselor. Uh, I am also certified as a prevention professional. So I've done work with alcohol, drug, and violence prevention in the past, both in the community and at colleges. Uh, I'm also a mental health counselor as well. So that's a little bit about my background. And I also live in Mankato. I, I have a dog myself, a rescue dog named Kate. And uh, well, I like him quite a bit. <laughs> so. Thanks for letting me be here today. On today's episode, we will be diving into the topic of vaping and tobacco use. Could you explain the vaping and tobacco use trend among youth? So in the last 10 years, we've seen a real steep decline in traditional combustible cigarette use and an incline in vaping and e-cigarette use. So I think a lot of that has to do with, um, you know, most youth understand the dangers around what a traditional cigarette is and how you shouldn't put that into your lungs. But when vaping and e-cigarettes came onto the market, there was this time where we were told it was the safe option, that it was water vapor, and now we're kind of having to battle it out and re-educate people that it isn't safe. So we've been seeing a huge uptick um, in the vaping market. Yeah, I, I agree. I'd I say one small exception to that is even looking at our Minnesota student survey data. You know, most recently we saw this little bit of dip, if that makes any sense, which we're still trying to figure out. Uh, people are asking, is it due to COVID? Is it due to some of the federal changes and so forth in terms of age and tobacco use? But generally speaking, those trends are pretty strong and, and it'll be interesting to see where they continue to move as years goes on. What are some of the biggest worries when it comes to vaping? What do your current st status look like? Yeah, I, I think building on some of that prior you know, question, we, we see this, you know, downward trend in, you know, our, our traditional products, and we've seen this increase in our vaping products. So we always have to ask ourselves, what's going to happen when these young people, you know, get older? What are they going to use? And, and that's where we don't necessarily have as much data as we'd like because, you know, these products aren't terribly old. They haven't been around for a terribly large amount of time. One of my scares is, is there's there's different studies that have been done looking at likelihood of using some of those traditional combustible products, you know, if you started vaping when you were younger. And sometimes we see things like maybe even being four times more likely to transition into cigarette use if you happen to use a vaping product when you're younger. So that's where I really get worried. What is this going to mean 10 years, 15 years, 20 years down the road when, you know, people are older, when they're in their 20s, 30s, and so on. And, and that's what we don't exactly know. But that worries me. That, that does worry me about what this is going to look like down the road. One thing that really worries about me is also um, the nicotine 
content in these devices is extremely high when you look at it compared to a cigarette and also the amount within the, the device. So when you're thinking about a, a cigarette, you've got maybe 20 puffs for one cigarette and if you times that by a pack, it's like 200 for a pack, um, maybe 400 puffs. But for these devices, some of them it's up to 6,000 puffs in just one device. So it's just a really large amount of um, liquid in there and nicotine for these youth to be ingesting. Right. how does vaping and tobacco use relate to substance abuse and addiction? Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. You know, one of the first things I'd say is these products are addictive. That, that's something we know. Nicotine itself as a chemical is something that is addictive. So as a counselor, you know, one of the things we take a look at is what we call diagnosis. So maybe you've heard of people being diagnosed with anxiety or depression or other mental health conditions. Uh, as an alcohol and drug counselor, we look at things like substance use disorders. We actually recognize what we call a tobacco use disorder. We look at a variety of criteria. Uh, for instance, you know, does a person use more than they intended? You know, have there been impacts on a person's kind of social environment? Are they missing things at school or work or has it impacted relationships? Is there tolerance? Is there withdrawal? But long story short, we have 11 criteria we take a look at and we don't recognize substance use disorders for all classes of drugs, but we do recognize that there are, there is dependence. There is a substance use disorder for tobacco products, if that makes any sense. So it's, it's addictive. One of the things we also know is that tobacco products are some of the most addictive drugs out there. They're, they compare really high to other drugs. People who use them tend to continue using them. Um, so they're very addictive. The other thing I'd say in regard to addiction in particular is if we think about people who have other addictions, say maybe they have an alcohol use disorder or uh, maybe a let's even say a opioid use disorder. For people who also use tobacco products, there's this correlation in terms of relapsing or returning to use. So if you have people trying to stop other drugs and they happen to be using tobacco products, unfortunately there's a much higher likelihood that if they don't stop using tobacco products, they're gonna to return to use with other drugs too. So there's this connection there. We can't say it's a cause, but we know that there's this fancy word correlation or connection between the two. Um, so there's there's a lot to be said there. Tobacco itself, the nicotine in it is addictive and it also plays a role in other addictions that people might be, be experiencing. Does that make sense? Yeah. An interesting fact that I know is that it takes the average user nine times to try to quit a tobacco product. So giving up and trying again nine times, it takes a lot for a person to want to do that. It can be really discouraging, so um, it's something to think about. Kaylee, as the ship coordinator, are there any effective strategies on tackling vaping and tobacco use? Sure. Um, one of the things that we really like to use in public health is prevention. Um, that's really key. So it's kind of getting upstream from the problem as much as we can. So. Um, using positive peer-to-peer -peer communication is really powerful. So what you guys are doing here today, um, encouraging other youth to think about using before they do it and just, um, you know, understand that nicotine is so addicting and sometimes it only takes one pup. So this is just great in itself for tackling um, use. 
Other things that we look at are using different policies and um, practices. So um, Tobacco 21, for example, was really key in tackling use um, within the communities. So it kind of helped to get it out of schools a little bit because we knew that 18-year-olds were providing it to students in school. So by making it 21, um, a lot less people know a 21-year-old when they're in high school than they do maybe an 18-year-old. So those are some of the strategies. Um, other prevention efforts would be just kind of putting out and educating the community, educating parents about even their own use and how that can affect their children, educating staff on what vaping trends are. Yeah, those are some examples. How have young people's view on vaping and tobacco changed and how does this affect prevention efforts. Unfortunately, there's been attempts by people who create these products to lead us to believe that they're not harmful. Uh, there's even um, this movement saying, oh, we can use these electronic devices to taper people off of using tobacco products. And I think the whole motive behind that is to cause people to think, oh, this is something good. Uh, we'll often hear, oh, they're so much less harmful than, you know, these, you know, uh, combustibles and so forth. So I think what that's done is it, it leads people to think that they're less harmful. And one of the things we know from research overall is when people think things are less harmful, use tends to increase. And I think that's part of why we've seen these increases. There's this belief that things are less harmful. Now, hearing some of these prevention efforts and so forth, that, that's what they're targeting, right? We're trying to help people to understand they are still harmful. There is still a lot of risk there because when perception of risk or harm goes up, use also tends to go down. So we've got to find a good balance in there. Roy, what are the health risks of vaping compared to conditional smoking? Yeah, that's, that's a great, great question. So, uh, you know, often what we hear is less, less harm, but I want to be very clear here that that's, that's, very, that, that's a misleading line. I always like to frame it like this. Driving 100 miles per hour is probably less risky than driving 125 miles per hour. That doesn't mean that driving 100 miles per hour is safe, right? So sometimes people try to make these comparisons to go, ah, this is so much safer, this is better. But with, with our vaping, there's still so much risk there. There's a lot of risk there. There's, you know, the you know, conditions of the lung, there's risk of depression, there's risk of anxiety, there's cardiovascularists the risk is still there. So I think we try to get so, f or I'll say people trying to market these products, try to get so focused on risk is lower. But again, lower doesn't mean no risk. There's still a whole lot of risk there. Is there anything you would add to that? Yeah, yeah I, I feel like I've had a lot of conversations around that too. Um, when trying to pass policies, people always say, well, um, and wrapping in e-cigarettes, people say, well, I'd rather have my kid using an e-cigarette than using a traditional cigarette. So why do we need to take away flavors? You know, why is that important? And like Roy said, you know, bad and less bad is still both bad. So just kind of understanding that concept and having those conversations is really important. Kaylee, are there any programs or campaigns that have been a part of to educate the community about the dangers or vaping of vaping and tobacco? Yeah, we do a lot of different things. Um, we're always posting different stuff on social media to kind of showcase the variety of different resources. Um, we've done a lot of work around different flavor campaigns and showing how 
um, it's, get, it's important to get those off the market because most youth, when they're using e-cigarettes, are using the flavored products. So if we take that away, people are a lot less, hopefully, less likely to use, right? Um, so that's a, an important campaign. We also have done education with parents. So I'll go and do different community nights um, and do just walking through e-cigarette 101 and kind of different things they can, they can look for when their children might be vaping, um, just knowledge of what the devices are, um, programs like that. Roy, how does vaping tobacco use impact mental health and well-being? Yeah, I, I think it has the possibility of having a really big impact on someone's mental health and well-being. Uh, so for instance, um, when a person's using tobacco products, we can think about acute effects. And they work as a stimulant. So when we talk about stimulants, it means it's, it's essentially speeding things up in your brain and your body, if that makes any sense. So imagine a person who might have experienced some anxiety. Sometimes we even hear people say, oh, I, I use tobacco products because you know, nicotine is actually pretty interesting the way it works. It has what we call this biphasic effect. But long story short, it can actually be a little stimulating. It can also be a little calming. Uh, so people tell themselves, it's going to calm me down. It's going to help me out. But the stimulant effects can actually amp people up. So if you're already feeling anxious, it can take that and it can magnify it. So there's risk there. And, and there's actually some connections to uh, vaping use and depression and so forth, mental health effects. There's, there's connections to actual brain development for young people as well, too. We, we know that young people's brains don't finish fully developing till the mid-20s or so, and there's some connections there with, in terms of judgment and frontal lobe sort of aspects. And the other thing I'd say is withdrawal. Many drugs have withdrawal effects, which basically means when you take them away, I like to say your body kind of throws a tantrum because your, your brain and your body sort of gets used to it, and you take it away, the brain says, I want it back, I want it back. So if a drug does one thing when you're using it, you actually get a rebound. You almost get the exact opposite effect when you stop using the drug. That's kind of just a real basic sort of statement. But what happens when a person stops using uh, any sort of nicotine product or vaping product, we'll say, when, they, when their body starts to throw that tantrum, they often feel restless, they feel jittery, uh, sometimes they can feel very anxious, they can feel really depressed. And then if you all of a sudden through withdrawals feel really anxious or depressed and you don't want to feel that anymore, sometimes people go, well, what can I do to not feel that way? And sometimes it's like, I'm going to use a little bit more, right? And that's, that's part of the addictive aspect of the drug. But some of these things can actually be very long term for people. So there's, there's a lot of potential impact when it comes to mental health and well-being. Roy, what role does education play in reducing vaping and tobacco use? And what should schools and colleges do about it? So I think this connects back to you know that piece where we talked about harm or, or level of risk. So one of the things we can do through education is to help potential users understand risk. Because again, as people start to understand there's more real risk, right? The likelihood of using also goes down. Um, also, a part of that is helping to educate not just potential users, but parents, families, actually decision makers, like everyone. There's a lot of misunderstanding out there. So I think that's really important. Thinking about schools and, and colleges, I'll, I'll jump to colleges since I, I work at a college, a, a university. I think helping people to understand those risks is important. I also think helping people to understand there are really good, effective things we can do to help them. There's a lot of people who want to quit, right? 
and maybe they've tried quitting on their own. They, they haven't been successful that first time, and we know it takes multiple times to be able to quit, right? Uh, so helping them to understand that, you know, if, if, it, if you don't have that ultimate success the first time, you've probably learned something from it. How do we take that, and how do we keep working with that to, to make it even better that next time around? But I think people feel defeated sometimes, like, you know, gosh, I know someone who's tried quitting their whole life and never been able to stop. I'm just doomed to be in that same situation myself. But there's a lot of hope. There's a lot of great products. There's a lot of great techniques and interventions that can be done. But people don't always know where to go look for them. One of the things that I find so interesting about, you know, tobacco use compared to other drugs is, say if a person has an alcohol use disorder, typically they go, I know if I need help, I'm going to go talk to my doctor, or more likely I might even go talk to a counselor. Uh, and there's, there's really these more strict protocols. But when people have a tobacco use disorder, there's sometimes confusion, like, do I go talk to a doctor? Do I go talk to a tobacco cessation person? Do I, do I call a quit line? Like, where do I go? What do I do? And it's sometimes not as clear where to go to get help. And long story short, there's a lot of places to get help, which is the good news, but it can be confusing. So I think from an education perspective, it's really about helping people to understand what's out there and how, how we can get them connected with those services, because there's a whole lot of good things we can do to really help people quit if they want to quit. Are there any policies or regulations in place to curve vaping and tobacco use? Are they effective? So there are. Um, the most recent was Tobacco 21. We touched on that a little bit, but just kind of um, expanding outside of that social circle within high school. So again, not less likely to know someone that's 21 versus 18. So that increase in age is shown to be really effective. Um, but when we're thinking about kind of trying to discourage tobacco use and what policies should be in place, we think about like a piece of Swiss cheese, they say. So the more different policies you have, the less holes you have. So you're trying to make that cheese whole. So you can't just pass one policy and say, ah, we did it. Um, no more tobacco use. You have to kind of keep working at it. And unfortunately, Big Tobacco was like really good at coming up with new ways to market to you and new ways to get around different policies. So it's kind of a never ending work. So I guess I'll never be out of a job. So there's a good thing in that. But um, different policies that we can look at passing as I've already talked about is like a flavors policy. So we know when they're creating like cherry or blueberry slushy, they're not creating those for like the 50 year old men that are smoking. Those are geared towards kids, right? So getting those off the market would be wonderful. Um, another policy would be limiting the amount of tobacco retailers that can be in a community. So maybe now you can have as many as you want. So maybe we want to limit that to maybe only three. And just think how great that would be when you're driving around your community, how there's just less options to do it. And it's further to go, so I just can't get it. Um, you can also look at things like proximities to school. So we know that when a tobacco shop is close to a school, it's, it's kind of marketing to youth. So let's, let's get those away from schools and pass a policy for that. Um, here in the area, we've passed a policy that you can't smoke on your fairgrounds. So that's a great one in the area here. Um, there's just lots of the different options and great minds always coming up with new policies to work against tobacco, uh, big tobacco, and yeah, lots of options. Roy, can you tell us more about the research on alcohol drug policy in higher education and its connection to vaping and tobacco control? Yeah, I, so uh, some colleagues and I did a study uh, a few years back now when we made some changes to our alcohol and other drugs policy at our university. 
And what we did is we, we followed student perception toward that policy over the course of time. And at that point in time, we were adding what was called an off-campus adjudication clause to our alcohol and other drugs policy, which basically means students could be held accountable for their behaviors off-campus in a more formal way. And the feedback we got is like, oh, the students are going to be outraged about this. There's going to be this upset. There's going to be this disappointment and so forth. And there are all these misperceptions about how people were actually going to take it and behave about it. Now, were there people who were disappointed and frustrated? Absolutely. But the important part about this policy work is that we took a look at student perceptions over the course of time. And ultimately what happened over the course of time, well, first I should say the level of disappointment or frustration from students we saw baseline was not near as great as I think anyone thought it was going to be. Second, what we saw is that continued to decrease over time. So we followed this basically five years because most students completed degree in four years. So we wanted to follow that four years plus another year. We saw that that general unfavorable attitude toward the policy continued to decrease over years. So I think the takeaway from that is whenever we're looking at policy, I think sometimes people in influential roles say, oh, we can't do that because we're going to make people mad. We're going to make people upset, and we don't want to lose favor with people. The thing I like to remind people about is that that's, that's not as long-lived long as people like to think it is, and people tend to adopt and often see the good in the policy much sooner than I think we give them credit for. So when we're talking about some of those tobacco use policies, yeah, they might be hard at first, but you know we tend to adapt pretty well. And I think we've always got to be careful to not assume how much dissent there's going to be. Yeah, it's hard not to get caught up worrying about that. You spend all this time worrying, and then it doesn't end up being that bad anyway. Absolutely. And in my line of work, kind of sometimes when they get more upset, it just kind of means you're doing more good. Like, oh, people, they were really against doing Tobacco 21 policy. Big Tobacco got thrown up in arms, you know. They're, oh, no. And that's how we knew we were kind of hitting them where it hurt. Kaylee, what ha help is available for people who want to quit vaping or using tobacco in community. Yeah, so there's a couple different options for youth. We like to refer people on to My Life, My Quit, and that's the Minnesota-based um, cessation program, so it has a lot of things catered towards youth. We have chat options, we have text options, because we know youth don't like to talk on the phone. You guys want to text, so we have that option, but you can call as well. Um, they have different counselors available to talk to you and then there's also adult options which is quit partner and kind of the same options but more tailored to adults and um, there they have the nicotine kind of patches and the nicotine gums and lozenges and then you can always reach out to your school counselors and they can talk to you about different programs within the community or get you connected to my life my quit or quit part um, quit partner how can parents talk to their kids about dangers of vaping and tobacco? Yeah, this is a conversation that I think a lot of parents kind of fear. Um, and there is a lot of things to consider. Um, first off, we recommend that you start this conversation early. It's, not, it's never too early to start. I have a seven-year-old and we already talk about it. Um, we also want to be considerate of when we're having the conversation. Is your child well-rested? Are they stressed out? Are they in a good mood? Do you have time to sit down for a long time and kind of hash things out and have like a detailed conversation? It's just not, um, you're heading out the door and we decide to talk about it. Um, 
And there's things called Vape Talk, and that's from the American Lung Association, which will kind of walk parents how to have these conversations, give them the facts, um, let you know what to expect, and just make sure you're kind of going into it with a listening mind. And, you know, maybe you are going to hear some things that you don't want to hear as a parent, like, hey, I've, I've tried vaping, and, man, it's, it's, prob it's a possibility. Um, Vaping doesn't target one group of kids. Unfortunately, unfortunately, it just it doesn't. I hear from a lot of parents, oh, my, my kid would never do that. They're a basketball player, and they just wouldn't do that. And that's not always the case. Um, there's no one set group. And I think that's kind of hard to wrap our minds around. Um, yeah, so just kind of knowing there's tools out there to help you and taking the time to sit down and read through them and kind of be prepared to have a, a what can be a difficult conversation. And... But it doesn't necessarily have to be. What advice do you have for other communities trying to stop vaping or tobacco use? Uh, uh, you know, the first thing that comes to mind for me is I think communities have to get a good sense of what the needs are in their community. I think it's so easy to look to a community like 25 miles away and think that we have the exact same problems that they do, and along with that have the exact same resources, the exact same situation. But uh, in the prevention world, we talk about what we call local conditions. So what's my local condition here in my community, however I might define that, right? Because what's going on right here might be actually very different than what's going on 25 miles away. So we got to figure out what's going on in our community. Um, part of that sometimes collecting data. Uh, now, you're asking someone who really likes data. Being a professor, that's kind of what we do sometimes. I love data. So you're getting some biased response here. but. Um, but I, I think we have to take a look at our data, whether that be the Minnesota Student Survey or community-based surveys or, or county-based data, but we have to take a look at the data. We have to do a really good job assessing our needs, figuring out what our gaps are, you know, who are our key influencers. We've got to look at all those pieces, and I think we've got to talk about it. One of the things that I've learned over time is that communities don't always like to talk about their not-as-good data. We like to focus on the good stuff, which is good, but, you know, frankly, we've got to talk about the stuff that's not as good, too, because if we don't, it's harder to make good change, right? Mm -hmm. So we've got to talk about that data. I think we have to be transparent about it. I think there's this fear sometimes if we share that data, like how is it going to be used negatively or what, you know, news station is going to end up on? Is it going to be catastrophized in some way? But honestly, I think that's the risk we've got to take. We've got to look at the data. We've got to take a look at our resources, and that's how we actually arrive at what we can do. I'd say the other thing I'd say to communities is wherever you're at is where you're at and there's a spot to move forward. So even the communities that have been doing good work for a long time, we don't just get to a stopping point and be done. For communities that haven't done much work, that's okay too. There's, there's still work to be done and we've all got to be working on it in some way. Along with that is there's so many communities at different spots, we can all learn from what those communities are doing and what's going on. So. I think we've got to talk from community to community. We've got great people who work, work in positions like you who, who have a good pulse on what's going on and how we connect people and learn from one another because when we actually sit down and listen and learn from one another, I think there's a whole lot of good that can come out of that. Yeah, I think it's really important that we don't have to recreate the wheel every time. Um, we can pull from other communities and make it fit our community. Another important part, just to kind of build on that yeah. would be to include peers and we kind of touched on this earlier but you guys have a lot of intel that we need we can't know I'm I'm too old to know what's going on in schools anymore I have to talk to you guys <laughs> and 
you guys have, you're the experts of the school, right? So what, we need to have those conversations. Why do you think people are vaping? What's appealing to them? How can, how can we stop um, this from happening? It's really important. And I can come in as, you know, a public health professional and tell you vaping is bad and tell you all the statistics, but, you know, you might just walk out the door with the same opinion, but maybe if I'm a, a 12th grader and I tried vaping and I didn't like it, and maybe I've quit vaping, but then I go and I talk to that second grader and say, hey, don't do this. I tried it. It was horrible. That has, like, such a big impact, right? Mm. So it's just really important to engage within your community and engage the youth when they want to. So we're so glad to have you here. Roy, how can educational counselors help people quit vaping or using tobacco? Yeah, so one of the things that counselors talk about, and not just counselors, we like to really talk about what we call stages of change. Uh, you know, anyone who's thinking about a health-related behavior change is likely at a different stage of change. And here's where I'm going with that. Say that someone's thinking of making a change, but they're hesitant about it. If we jump too far ahead and jump into planning and such like that, we're probably gonna lose them. We've always gotta meet people where they're at. So if I'm working with a client and the client happens to say to me, you know, I'm thinking that maybe I wanna give up my tobacco use. Um, I'm going to ask them of that. I'm going to figure out where they're at in that process. And they might say, well, you know, not right now. Not right now, but I, I know it's something I want to work on. I'm going to engage them where they're at. And I might, I might talk about, well, when do you see that change happening? What would that change look like? You know, what, what do you think it would take you to get from where you're at right now to that point of being ready for change? I'm not going to push it on them, but I'm going to just humbly inquire and try to get a good sense of where they're at and again meet them exactly where they're at because if they tell me oh i'm thinking about making a change and i jump ahead and I go oh well i want to connect you with my quit my plan i want to connect you with this 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 and let's jump into action planning i'm probably just completely overloading them at that point in time right yeah. so i want to slow down meet them where they're at now on the other hand if i've got someone who's in what we call the action stage you know or maybe preparation stage and they're actually looking for advice or guidance on, I know there's got to be things, you know, I've heard there's medicines, I've heard all this kind of stuff, then I'm helping connect and refer them and so forth. So really based on where they're at, I've got to tailor my response to meet them. And I think that's the really the most important thing. The other thing I'll say for counselors in general, we really have to be knowledgeable about what resources are out there. You know, for me, thinking about even on campus, if I have a student, you know, come to come to my door and go, hey, um, I heard you're an alcohol and drug counselor person, you know, where do I go? What do I do? That's something I should know. You know, what resources do we have on our campus? If I'm practicing in the community, you know, what resources do we have? What do we have Minnesota-wide and so forth? So helping to give a menu, because if I try to push just one thing, imagine if I told you there's just only one way to do this, that doesn't feel as good as saying, you know, here's a, a menu of things for you to choose from. So you start to feel like you got some control over it or in, an, in the decision, that engages people in this process. And that's what we want to do. We want to put them in charge and feel really good about it, right? So I think those are just a couple of, I think, key things that come to mind. Kaylee, how does your role at CHIP coordinator connect to people's health efforts to reduce vaping and tobacco use? I've touched on this a little bit already, but prevention is like our key 
thing that we're looking for all the time. So just making sure to take that kind of public health prevention and putting that into our communities and meeting them where they're at um, and kind of pulling in partnerships. That's a big part of what we do too. We don't want to come in and say, this is what you need to do, do this. We want it to kind of come up and bubble up from the surface, um, building off of what they want to do. Because if I come in and tell you to do something, you just don't want to do it, right? You, you want it to be your idea, and I'll come along and support you in it, right? <laughs> Can you share any success stories from your work in this field? One of my biggest success stories was passing the Tobacco 21 policy in one of my communities. Um, that was something that was really challenging and you never know what you're going to get with city council and it's really intimidating to go up there and you don't know what questions they're going to ask you. Um, but it passed and you know I felt like I did something really good for the community and people were thankful and just kind of to move on and start that process somewhere else um, is a good feeling. Yeah. I, I, I actually want to stay relatively generic with this because <laughs> I think successes can look a lot of different ways. And I think it's so easy to get caught up in like, oh, we've seen a 47.2% reduction in whatever. You know, we get all excited about numbers, which, don't get me wrong, are, are, are exciting and important, and I really like numbers. But I, I think it's so easy to get distracted by numbers, right? So, like, I even think of a, a community that was able to do a really awesome parent survey, right? Because we always talk about the important role that parents play but we don't necessarily have really good data about what our parents know or what they're doing and so forth. So engaging parent organizations, collecting parent data, I'm going, that's a big win for some communities, right? I think that's really, really awesome. So we've got to look at, I think, all those small victories that are happening. You know, my mind immediately went to the policy work too because whatever we can do in terms of what we call environmental management, changing the environment, changing policies, changing culture, that's huge. So we see those really big wins and that's, that's exciting too. So it's 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 happening. Uh, you know, I'll say on a, a much more bigger level, seeing some of the the payback requirements to states and communities and such like that, mm -hmm. I think is a win too because I think that's really good acknowledgement. I love when I look and I see politicians who are really advocating for how those dollars have to be spent, and I love when they're being allocated really primarily back to prevention and so forth. Uh, whenever dollars like that, you know, come into play, there's a lot of people trying to grab at those dollars for different things. So I love, I love when I see people who are willing to take that stand and say, yep, this needs to go back to tobacco prevention and so forth. So when I see that happen, that gets me really excited too, and that is happening. So that's good stuff. And I would say this is like a big win, right? This is a new opportunity to get the word out about what tobacco prevention looks like and the dangers. So I think this is like a really nice win too. What are the next steps and challenges in the fight against tobacco and vaping? And how can people and communities help? I, I will say, I, I think it's for communities to stay, I was gonna say vigilant, <laughs> but, <laughs> but maybe aware and active, I think is what I'd say, because like when we have, when we have powers that be trying to get legislation passed to really recognize, you know, electronic devices as a, a quit method, there's a lot of ulterior motive there. There's a lot of ulterior motive. So this is where I say we've always got to be watching these things. We've got to be thinking very critically about it and going, hey, what's, what's, what's the end result of this, you know, down the road and so forth. So I think we have to look at those things. We've always got to ask ourselves what comes next. Um, when I talk about addiction, 
addiction's been around for as long as we've been around, right? It's there, and things cycle. You know, things cycle right now. Obviously, you know, vaping right now is a big topic. It's probably not going to be the same big topic, you know, 15, 20 years from now. And we have to ask ourselves, what's that going to be? What's that going to be? Also knowing that some things cycle back around. Things that became unpopular become very popular again. I, I like to talk about methamphetamine. We've gone through periods of big problem. So it kind of disappears and then it comes back and so forth. But long story short, while the drugs change, addiction. Addiction's always here. It's always present. So I think we have to stay mindful. We have to pay attention. And we need to keep, you know, having people like you all be involved and, and asking the tough questions and so forth and, and doing the good work. So, yeah, so thank you for doing what you do. I have to agree with that. It's hard to nail down a concrete next step because things are always changing. So we'll look to you and we'll support you with what you think the next step should be. Finally, what resources or organizations do you recommend for learning about preventing vaping and tobacco use? Yeah, I'd say I think it depends on who you are and what your role is. And here's why I say that. There's a lot of great resources out there. So if you happen to be a parent, there's a lot of great resources for parents specifically talking to their children about vaping. So let's take a look at that. When it comes to, you know, when it comes to an individual wanting to quit and so forth, um, there's also a lot of great resources out there. I think we have to kind of get a good sense of what they are and what's available. Uh, so like for instance, I, I work at a university. We have a student health services. We have, we have prescribers there who can be very helpful if that makes any sense. We got to know what those resources are. and That's campus specific, but getting to know who's in the community, who's on board with this. I imagine if you start asking around what doctors are really good about, you know, prescriptions and so forth and what counselors really getting involved in this type of work, there's people who champion certain things like this, trying to figure out who they are. And also knowing there's a lot of great options out there. You know, there's call-based services, there's text-based services. Everyone has different ones, and the great news is there are so many resources out there. I'd say even trying to figure out who your resources are at your school, because you, know, you might not know them all yourself, but there are people in our communities who can list these off one, two, three, four, and I, they probably even have sheets in their office somewhere that say what all these resources are, right? You know, so I think knowing the resources that know all the resources, I think that's that's so key. Because sometimes when there's so many things available, it can start to feel confusing, right? So having those people who can help identify them and maybe help narrow them down, I think that's the real big key. Yeah, I would echo that. It's going to be different for everyone what they say. I work for the Statewide Health Improvement Partnership, and that comes out of the Minnesota Department of Health. So I would say the Minnesota Department of Health, SHIP, um, so myself. We work with the American Lung Association a lot. So those would be kind of my key recommendations that I typically go with. Thank you, Roy and Kaylee. And thank you for watching the Empower Podcast, Coffee and Clarity.